what is actually lecture number 35, can you believe that, uh, on the virgin birth. Now, I don't always draw attention to the quotes uh, that we have on the front. Uh, you understand I expend a great deal of time and energy looking for these quotes. Uh, not really, but um, uh, John Milton's uh, poem uh, on the morning of Christ's nativity. Uh, I love John Milton's poetry. Uh, but the final two lines forsook the courts of everlasting day and chose with us a darksome house of mortal clay. Well, of course, uh, you were wondering why we were singing Christmas carols uh, in September. Uh, and it was not uh, a, the beginning of Advent season and that we were going to have uh, Advent sermons from now until uh, Christmas time. Uh, but of course, uh, in uh, Wesley's wonderful Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And don't you miss singing these except once, once a year, twice a year in, in, uh, in December? Uh, but the second uh, verse, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Uh, the reference there, of course, to the virgin birth. And then, uh, and don't, uh, don't, don't get all excited and, and concerned about a quotation from Karl Barth. Uh, this is probably the only quotation from Karl Barth I'll have in these lectures, Dr. McDowell. But um, uh, Karl Barth's, uh, this section in Barth, you know, like, like a lot of theologians uh, who are astray in certain areas, and Karl Barth was certainly astray in more than one area, uh, and uh, is, is unorthodox on, on some very important issues, but on the Incarnation, uh, Karl Barth had uh, just some astonishing things to say, wonderful things to say. Uh, and the quotation, you can read it at your leisure, as you say, or leisure. Uh, and uh, what, he, what he's saying is that at the beginning and end of Jesus' life, uh, there is a miracle. Uh, there is something supernatural. The way he comes into the world is supernatural by a virgin birth, and the way he exits the world by a resurrection uh, and an ascension. Uh, so at both ends of the life of Jesus, like, like two pillars, uh, you, have, you have supernatural. Uh, he is unlike us in the manner of his coming and, uh, for that matter, in the manner of his going. Well, this uh, semester... We're looking at Christology, we're looking at the person of Christ, and next uh, spring, uh, God willing, we will look at the work of Christ. We come tonight uh, to a consideration of uh, the virgin birth. Uh, Natus ex Maria uh, Virgine, or in Latin, born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, we, we say that every Sunday in the Apostles' Creed, born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, so the virgin birth uh, from, uh, from very early, although, although the Apostles' Creed is probably from the 7th century, uh, it, has, it has forms in the 3rd and 4th century, but in the form that we know it, it it's probably as late as the 7th century. Um, but fairly early in uh, the life of the church, uh, the doctrine of the virgin birth uh, was viewed as one of the fundamental and most important doctrines. And that's, and that's somewhat surprising uh, if, if you didn't know the Apostles' Creed, uh, if you were approaching the New Testament, for example, for the first time and, and reading it for the first time and asking yourself, where in the New Testament uh, do you find the virgin birth? And actually, you don't find it in many places. You find it in Matthew and in Luke's account of the birth narrative of, of Jesus. It's not in Mark, it's not in John's Gospel, and perhaps also, and some claim that it's not in Paul. 
Paul never mentions the virgin birth. He alludes to it, I think, and we'll, we'll have a look at that tonight. Um, but there is no specific mention of the virgin birth in Paul. That doesn't mean to say Paul didn't believe it, but it wasn't... Mm, it wasn't that important a truth. I'm putting this um, in a form that doesn't come back and bite me. Um, it, it was a truth, but it wasn't that important a truth that Paul would build a, a, a massive theology upon. It's, it's not something I think Paul gave much thought to. Well, pop that little seed in your head. Uh, be careful how it grows. Uh, I'll, I'll come back and address it in a, in a moment. Uh, there are some uh, great pieces of literature on the virgin birth uh, for those uh, who are avid readers uh, among us and uh, a book that's now uh, heading towards 100 years old, uh, Gresham Machen, uh, the version I have was published in 1965, but uh, this is a, a, a young and early uh, work by Gresham Machen, still uh, a standard piece, a uh, fairly lengthy piece on the virgin birth. And then uh, just a wonderful uh, article by B.B. Warfield. Now, again, let me, let me look at the biblical testimony here. And uh, the section in italics uh, is, is my saying um, that the New Testament doesn't actually give a great deal of emphasis to the virgin birth. Uh, it's not in Mark, John, Paul, or Peter. Um, and that leads, of course, you can understand, that leads uh, skeptical readers of the New Testament, uh, liberal the theologians of one stripe or another, uh, to discredit the virgin birth and to suggest that perhaps the reason why the virgin birth is there at all is for for reasons to, to, bolster, uh, to bolster Matthew or, or Luke's theology. But um, let's, let's pass all of that by. Uh, let's consider Matthew and Luke, uh, the birth narratives uh, of Jesus. Uh, in Matthew 1 and uh, in Luke 1, uh, both, both of these accounts of the birth narratives um, refer to uh, the virgin birth of Jesus, that Mary is a virgin and that she conceives and that she conceives by the power of the Holy Spirit that which is uh, conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now actually um, Mark and, and John uh, do not have birth narratives. It's not that they don't have virgin birth accounts, they, they don't have birth narratives. They are writing, I think, on the assumption that other gospel writers have already alluded to the birth narratives. So, of the record of the birth narratives that we have, all of them, there are only two, but all of them refer to the virgin birth. In other words, you have 100%. 100% of the birth narratives refer to the virgin birth. Uh, it's also in the Quran. Uh, and I, I've quoted here from the Quran, the 19th chapter of the Quran. Um, the Quran, of course, was given uh, in the 7th century, uh, revealed over a period of 23 years or so uh, by, through Gabriel to the prophet uh, Muhammad. Uh, and uh, in chapter 19, uh, sections 19 through 22, you can read that again at your leisure. Um, but the Quran, too, refers to the virgin uh, birth. It's, it's not uh, peculiarly then a Christian uh, doctrine. Uh, John, uh, I said John doesn't refer to the virgin birth, uh, but let's look at John 1.13. This is the prologue of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning uh, with God. And then uh, in, in verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only uh, Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. But verse 13, preceding that, that 14th verse, says, Who were born, 
not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Uh, and and it's, um, it's who were born. And the text, as, as, as you and I know it, is a text that refers... It's one of those texts that Calvinists love to use because it, it says that, that the reason for our being born, uh, which is a Johannine sort of concept of being born again, being, being rebirthed, that that, that that was not the result of our will. It was a sovereign work of God. So John 1.13 is one of those Calvinistic texts uh, to, to swipe on the head those who believe in free will, if you like. Actually, there's a textual variant uh, in the process of the transmission of the Bible. Uh, John 1.13 has been rendered, not who were born, but who was born in the singular, not in the plural. And then that verse is then referring to Jesus. Jesus was born, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words that there was something extraordinary about the manner of the birth of Jesus. Uh, That particular textual variant, um, look at your ESV footnote to understand what I'm uh, speaking of here. Um, that, That has gained a great deal of impetus in the Eastern Church. So the church in the East as opposed to the church in the West always view John 1.13 not as a statement about, about the sovereignty of God in the regeneration of an individual believer, but actually as a reference to Jesus himself, who was born not of the will of man, n- nor of the flesh, but of God. He was born. Uh, so that becomes then a reference to, uh, to Jesus, and John is saying there's something Well, there's something extraordinary. There's something different about the manner of the birth. The way Jesus came into being uh, as a human being was was different in some way. So so John may, in fact, not be silent on the virgin birth. He he may actually uh, allude to the virgin birth in John uh, 1.13. What about Galatians 4.4? When the fullness of the time had come, uh, and I don't think Paul is thinking there in terms of Roman roads and the Greek language and making the gospel easier to to move across Europe, Uh, all of those were providential factors to be sure, but John I think is thinking redemptive historically, when the fullness of time had come, that is when the promise of Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of Satan, when that promise now had reached its culmination, its point of fulfillment, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Well, duh. I mean, how else is he going to be born? I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? Born of a woman, you know. Tell me about yourself. Well, I was born of a woman. Really? I mean, that's kind of surprising. It's rather odd that Paul would say, born of a woman. Uh, it's, it's just as odd in Greek. It's just as odd in a kind of Hebraic mindset um, that, that, that Paul would say, born of a woman. Now, he, he may, and, I, and I, think, I think he is, he may be thinking of Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the seed of the woman, Eve. Jesus is born of a woman. You know, ding, ding. I'm thinking of Genesis 3.15. When the fullness of time had come, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled. That's what I think Paul is actually alluding to. But, but there are some who think that when Paul says born of a woman, he's... He's kind of nodding in the direction of the virgin birth. He's he's born of a woman, but there's something odd about the manner of his birth. You know, everybody's born of a woman. Hey, Paul was born of a woman. His readers were all born of women. But there's something about Jesus. He was born of a woman too, but there's there's something different about it. 
I don't think that's what Paul intends. I don't think this is a reference to the virgin birth. I think it's a reference to Genesis 3.15. But there are, there are some who think that Paul in Galatians 4.4 is alluding, giving a kind of nod in the direction of the virgin birth. Now, uh, there are uh, alternative explanations uh, to the Christian uh, doctrine. Um, uh, I raise here uh, two of them. Uh, One is uh, that this is a Jewish uh, story. Um, And it is a Jewish story. uh, And the reference here is to uh, Isaiah chapter 7. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Remember the promise Uh, This is a pre-exile promise on the part of Isaiah to uh, speaking. Isaiah is in in the the, the pre-exilic period and he's giving a promise. Much of his prophecy is about the exile and, and the doom and the destruction that's coming. But beyond that, Isaiah sees a messianic figure. It culminates, of course, in the servant songs of 42, 49 uh, 50 and, and 52, 53, those four servant songs that we're going to study on Sunday evenings uh, soon. Dr. Ralph Davis will be preaching on those four servant songs uh, in the course of the, next, uh, of the next few weeks or so after he's finished his uh, little series on Exodus 1 to 3. Um, but you remember in chapter 7 and again in chapter 9 and actually again in chapter 11, but in chapter 7 and chapter 9 of Isaiah, he, he gives these, these messianic prophecies. In chapter 7, a, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. There's been a lot of, well, just a lot of brouhaha about that promise. It's way too specific a promise. Um, liberals have said that Isaiah, you know, 600 plus years, 700 years before Jesus would be able to prophesy that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. And, and the, the Hebrew word, Alma in Hebrew, um, is, is, a, is a much more general word they have suggested and so on, so on, so on. There's been a lot of brouhaha that Isaiah was actually prophesying about Jesus. Uh, I've given you uh, I've given you some information here, somewhat technical, but actually that is precisely what Isaiah was prophesying. The word that he chose uh, was a very, a very specific word. Uh, I think it's a word that is suggestive uh, of a young girl, to be sure, but young girls, in the context it would be understood, were virgins, you understand. So, so he's using an appropriate Hebrew word, suggestive of uh, of a young girl who was a uh, uh, Virgo intacta, uh, who, was a, who was a virgin, um, but she will conceive. And that prophecy is a prophecy then relating to the coming of Jesus. Now the fact is that uh, the gospel writers are not being influenced by an expectation in intertestamental Judaism, because actually in intertestamental Judaism, they didn't read Isaiah 7 that way. There, there wasn't an expectation among the Jews of a, a virgin birth at all. They, there should have been. They should have read Isaiah 7 and been expecting a virgin birth, but actually they weren't. So you can't, you can't say, oh, well, Matthew and Luke are giving us a story of a virgin birth because that's what Jewish expectation was in the intertestamental period. Actually, it wasn't, even though it should have been. They, they should have read Isaiah 7 that way. Uh, another alternative story is uh, the pagan story, and we won't go into it, but uh, there are all kinds of uh, fertility cults uh, in uh, intertestamental periods, uh, in, in, um, um, in, in, in various uh, societies, uh, in, in, in Greek mythology, for example, that involved um, sexual... Uh, issues between, between gods and human beings or, or semi-gods and human uh, beings or, or gods and, and angelic beings and so on. And so in, uh, there, were, there were all kinds of stories of that nature. Um, the virgin birth narrative, however, is entirely different from 
that. There is, there is actually no suggestion in the virgin birth account of some kind of sexual activity on the part of God and Mary. Uh, the language is very circumspect. Something happens in Mary and that which happens is of the Holy Spirit. But there is, there is no suggestion here of any kind of sexual intercourse between, say, the Holy Spirit and Mary. Uh, that's not how the story is told. That is how similar stories would have been told in, uh, in pagan mythology. So there's something unique about the way and manner in which the virgin birth is actually spoken about in the New Testament. What's the theological significance of the virgin birth? And first of all, uh, a very obvious thing is that it highlights the supernatural character of Jesus, that the manner of his coming, just as the manner of his leaving, but the manner of his coming is entirely supernatural. He comes into the world as a pre-existent being. He enters human nature at the earliest possible point, at the point of conception. Actually, that's, uh, that's important data in itself uh, in relation to uh, ethical and moral issues with regard to abortion and, and when does life begin. And uh, certainly for scripture, um, this is another corroboration that life, the life of Jesus begins at the moment of conception, that which is conceived in her. So it's, it's, not, it's not three months or six months or, or eight months or nine months or at the point of birth, but at the point of conception. That's how the Bible thinks here, that Jesus begins his human existence at the point of conception. It's also a judgment on human nature. I mean, think about it. Mankind needs a savior, but mankind cannot produce that savior. You can take the holiest man and the holiest woman to produce a holy child that we could think of as a, as a messiah, as a, as a mediator, as a redeemer figure. But, but humanity cannot do that. It's a judgment on human nature. That God has to intervene. He has to do something extraordinary. He has to go beyond the confines and limitations of humanity to redeem a problem that exists in humanity. Sin. Right, so humanity needs a redeemer, but, he, but humanity cannot produce one. Uh, notice, too, it, uh, it's a judgment on human nature, and this is... This is awkward and difficult and a little sensitive and forgive me, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be as sensitive as I can here, but Mary was non-willing. I'm using very deliberate language here. She wasn't unwilling, but she was non-willing. What I mean by that is that her willingness was not sought. Right? The angel doesn't come to Mary and say, are you, are you willing? It's an announcement. She is told that she is pregnant. Her willingness, it, it, it's, not, it's not against her will, but her will was not sought. Her willingness was not a factor. It's quite staggering. Right? It's quite breathtaking that the angel comes and simply announces to Mary. Now, from one point of view, that escalates for us our respect for Mary. It's, it's hard for me as a, as, as, as a male to even think about it, but... trying to put yourself in Mary's position, hearing this announcement, right? You can imagine, forgive me, I'll, I'll, I'll tread carefully and then retreat, but you, you understand, you can, you can almost hear Mary saying, I've been violated. 
It's, it's, it's that edgy, if I can put it that way. She is simply told that she is pregnant. She wasn't asked for her willingness. She is non-willing. It's yet another indication of a judgment on humanity, including Mary. That humanity needs a savior, but humanity's willingness is not a factor. Humanity's contribution in one sense is not a factor. Now, th- this raises some, some theological issues, and the issues are, of course, uh, the sin of Adam and the transmission of the sin of Adam and uh, what we call original sin. Right? Every human being, every, every child born into this world is born with imputed Adamic sin. It doesn't happen at three or six or seven or at the age of consent or, 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 or whatever. Right? From, from actually from the moment of conception. We are in Adam. We are either in Adam or in Christ. And, and, and every indiv- that's, wh- that's why we baptize children. We, we baptize children because they're sinners. They, they receive the sign and seal of the gospel because they need the gospel. Right? Young, weeks old, months old, they're in need of the gospel. Now the, the, the question is how, is, how is Jesus free from original sin? Now he's free from actual sin, he never... He never actually sinned. But how is he free from the federal sin, the imputed sin of Adam? Now some, some will say, and, and you, you might read this somewhere, that the virgin birth is the answer to that. Because, because he is conceived of the Holy Spirit, he has no link with Adam. Wrong. Right, you know that's wrong. That's very wrong. That's, that's totally wrong. Because Jesus does have a link with Adam through Mary. Um, to put it, um, to put it uh, bluntly, uh, and, and we'll come back to it in a minute, 23 of the chromosomes in Jesus' body were from Mary. 23 of them came from the Holy Spirit, but 23 of them came from Mary. The Y chromosome came from the Holy Spirit. So the virgin birth in and of itself is not an adequate explanation as to why Jesus is free from original sin. Now he is free from original sin, but the virgin birth is not an adequate explanation as to why that is. You need something more. You need a, a, a sovereign ensurement that that which is born of Mary is free from original sin. Because Jesus did inherit from Mary. You know, he looked like Mary. In all probability. I mean, in all probability, and, and you can do the test when you get to heaven and you see Mary and you see Jesus and you look at them and you, and you look from one to the other and look back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and you say, you know, I can see the likeness. And then when you catch up with Joseph, you'll say, hey, he's not Joseph's. There's absolutely nothing in Jesus that looks like Joseph. I mean, nothing. You know, when Jesus was a little boy, and he's uh, running through the streets of Nazareth. And, and uh, did Jesus play? I'm sure he did. And he's playing, um, you know, what did first century children play in the streets? You know, I used to play with, uh, with uh, bicycle wheels without the tires, you know, without the, and, and, and the trick was to keep them, keep them upright. And that meant you had to keep them moving with a stick. 
What does my wife say? <laughs> it's kind of sad, I know. This was before computers and iPhones and, and all that stuff, right? You had, to make your, you had to make your own fun. But my point is that... I've forgotten what my point is now. That, that Jesus, when he was a little boy and you saw him running through the streets, you'd say, doesn't he look like his mother? You know, somebody would say, somebody would say, he's the spitting image of his mother. Nobody ever said he looks like Joseph. Let's not talk about that. Now, I won't get into too deep waters here, but, but something has kind of bedeviled the church from Augustine and, and before Augustine, uh, Irenaeus to some extent, Origen to some extent, but certainly Augustine. Um, that the trouble with mankind, as far as sin is concerned, is men. Well, I was expecting more of a response from the women, <laughs> for sure. In other words, let me, let me be, I don't want to be indelicate here, but the, the, the way and the manner, the, the conduit through which original sin is passed is through the man, through the male. Actually, for Augustine, it was sex. But it's all to do with his terrible life before he was converted, and then after he was converted, he sort of went 180 degrees in the opposite direction and, and began to think of all of it as, as, as sinful, and, and, and that's what the problem is. It, it has a fancy name, concupiscence, uh, but, but all of this, all of this, finds its way into an explanation as to why Jesus is without original sin is because there is no male factor in, in the formation of Jesus in the womb of Mary. Because there was no male, therefore he's without original sin. No, that doesn't work either. But, but that has bedeviled the church and it's bedeviled the Roman Catholic Church it's, it's, it's a part of the issue why the Roman Catholic Church still has issues about conception and so on. Um, it, it, it's, it's, all, it's all part of that. Um, so, if, if you can't get the sinlessness of Jesus because of the virgin birth, and you can't get the sinlessness of Jesus by excluding the male factor, the way you get the sinlessness of Jesus is to make Mary sinless. That'll do it. The sinlessness of Mary. So you, you, have, you have a dogma, the Immaculate Conception. Now the Immaculate Conception is not a dogma about Jesus, right? The Immaculate Conception is a dogma about Mary. It's that, he, it's that Mary was immaculately conceived. So she is without sin. Now, the, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception isn't that old. It's only 150 years old. 1854, Pope Pius the ninth in his papal bull infallibilis Deus, right? The Immaculate Conception hasn't been round, you know, in the in the stream of, of history. It's only been round for 150 years. The Immaculate Conception, and it was an attempt on the part of the Catholic Church, a, a dual thing. One was the the rise of Mar- Mariolatry in the Catholic Church, but but also it it kind of it kind of ensured the sinlessness of Jesus. You make his mother sinless. Now, let's go back to the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 8 and verse 2. Conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. Now, the confession is actually picking up uh, language from the ancient ecumenical creeds uh, here. uh, But underlining, yes, Jesus was conceived using the substance of Mary. This isn't scientific language, uh, and and uh, the the doctors, especially the 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 the, the Jimmy Stans, can tell you. <laughs> I don't go into it, but but he's your man. He can explain all of this. Um, but but Mary's stuff, Mary's DNA. 
was involved in, in the formation of the human body of Jesus. But it was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now what does that mean? I have no idea what that means. I mean, I have absolutely no idea what that means. Um, I accept it as uh, on faith that the Holy Spirit was able to produce the, the, the male factor, the Y chromosome. Why is that a problem for the Holy Spirit? Who was present in the creation of the cosmos? I mean, what's a, what's a, few, what's a few molecules when, when he can make the universe? Right? So, so the, the issue is... The issue is not, the issue is one, do you believe in miracles? The issue is, is do you believe in the supernatural? This is a supernatural fact. This is a supernatural entity. Right, the role of Mary here, the conception is miraculous. The birth was normal. Now, we talk about the virgin birth, and, and, and I wish we didn't. I wish we could undo history. I wish we could go back you know, 1,700 years and stop calling it the virgin birth because the, the birth itself was perfectly ordinary. There was pain, there was... Jimmy Stans will tell you. It, it's, it, it was perfectly ordinary. It was the conception that was extraordinary. We call it the virgin birth because the one giving birth was a virgin. But it's not that the birth was extraordinary, it was the conception that was extraordinary. So here's a quotation, uh, and it comes from J. Stafford Wright um, 60 years ago. Through, through the 23 cr- chromosomes in the ovum of, in Mary's body, Jesus became a member of the human race. These chromosomes were the end products of the line of David and of many other, others beside, going back ultimately to the first true man and woman. Now, what that says, I mean, it says a whole lot of things, but what that says is that the creation of the human body of Jesus was not like the creation of the world. The creation of the world was ex nihilo. It was out of nothing. The original creation of Adam was not ex nihilo. It was out of the dust of the ground. And similarly, similarly, the creation of the human body of Jesus is not out of nothing, but is ex Maria. It is out of Mary. Out of the dust of Mary, if we can put it that way. Right? So let me just underline it. All, and I mean all, apart from sin, all that a human mother contributes to her child, Mary contributed to Jesus. That's uh, staggering, isn't it? Um, Mary's, you know, if you did a DNA test, I'm speaking beyond my knowledge here. But if you did a DNA test for Jesus, you did a mouth swab, drunk from a glass of water, and you take it to the lab, you know, and people in white coats do their, do their thing, you know, and, and you put it in a spinner and, and in a machine, and, and there's whirring sounds, and, and there's a beep, and, and out comes the answer. And uh, on CSI, it happens in seconds. Because <laughs> the whole thing has to be over in 40 minutes. <laughs> now, supposing you did a, a, um, a DNA swab of Jesus, you would discover DNA connection with Mary of her substance. She contributes everything that a mother contributes to her child except for sin. The prevention of original sin has to be a sovereign thing. God decrees it. God overrules it. Federally, he is is not reckoned 
with original sin. Uh, one more little, little statement. Uh, theotokos kind of caused a huge brouhaha in the church, uh, in the early church. Protestants get kind of squeamish about it, a little nervous of it. Um, she's the God-bearer would be a fairly literal rendition. The one, the one in her womb, you see Mary and she's, um, you know, she's seven months, eight months pregnant. I mean, I, I did congratulate, I've only done this once, and I will never do it again, I will, I will never do it again, but I did congratulate a lady one time on being pregnant and she wasn't. Uh, it's a huge faux pas, there's no way back. Um, there's no way out of it. There's nothing you can say. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. Uh, I will never do that again, ever. They have to be nine months. And, and she's, she's on the way to the hospital before I say anything. I, um, but you see Mary, and she's eight months uh, pregnant. She is carrying God. Because the one in her womb is God. Now he's a human being, but he is also the son of God. There is only one he. She's not carrying the divine nature. The divine nature is everywhere. Inside or outside of her. The divine nature of Jesus is omnipresent. She's carrying the human nature of Jesus, but there's only one he. He is two natures in one person. There's only one person. And the person is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. So she is carrying God. She's the God bearer. Well, you didn't balk at that, but what if I said she's the mother of God? Nah, now you're getting nervous. She is the mother of God. Can we say that? Well, of course, if you're Roman Catholic, you can say it because you say it all the time. You say it several times a day. But Protestants are, are very reluctant to say about Mary, she's the mother of God. She is the mother of one who is God and man. This has got, uh, this has got a, little, a little difficult. Uh, this has got to where... Where Protestants have, have, have sort of shied away from Theotokos, even though it was part of the ecumenical creed, um, it was a, it was certainly a statement about uh, about it was in the Nicene Constant and the Paulton Creed uh, about uh, about about uh, Jesus. Uh, the role of the Holy Spirit, uh, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, fertilizing the ovum, sanctifying the human nature, S- sanctifying the human nature. Um, theologians have, have wrestled with, you know, how is, is there a conception? Mary's DNA, uh, the Holy Spirit adds, adds something. Mary's stuff, if I can put it that way, is, is, is riddled with original sin. Because right? she's a sinner. So, is there a conception and then the Spirit sanctifies it? sanctifies that human nature. At the moment of conception, does the Holy Spirit sort of sanctify that human nature? All kinds of people have uh, talked about it. Uh, Ask Dr. McDowell. uh, He'll tell you what Karl Barth said about it. Not anything. Well, I'll let you ask Dr. McDowell about that. Um, I think that the answer has to be and, and, and this isn't doing theology for the sake of theology. There is no moment at which the human nature of Jesus can be attributed with original sin. At, there is no moment of its existence. So, the, the word con-created, you know, theologians make up words to, to, try, and, to try and get themselves out of a, a difficulty. What they're trying to say is that, that in the whole process of the formation of 
the human nature of Jesus, the, 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 the what, what's the first thing that gets, what, what's the term? There's an egg, semen, and then what? Zygote. Thank you, I've forgotten it. A zygote. There is no moment at which the zygote has original sin. So, so together with the creation of that zygote, there is a sovereign superintendence to ensure that the zygote is, is never attributed with original sin. That, that's all that theologians can say about it. I, I don't understand that. But I do understand that that must be the case. That there is no moment, there is no millisecond in which the human nature of Jesus uh, is attributed with original sin. Now, any suggestion here that the Spirit then is Jesus' father? Mary is his mother, so who is the father figure in the conception of Jesus, the Holy Spirit? But at no point ever does Jesus, in in his self-consciousness, think of the Spirit as father. He, he certainly has a relationship to the Holy Spirit. He promises the Holy Spirit in the upper room discourse to the disciples when he goes away. But at no point does he ever address the Holy Spirit as Father. Now Catholicism, and uh, l- let, me, uh, let me just round off uh, some of this perpetual virginity of uh, Mary uh, is, is, is one of the issues um, if she was a virgin at the point of birth, then uh, in the fifth ecumenical council, and we're in the sixth century, uh, she's, she's uh, a parthenos. Uh, of course, parthenogenesis is, is the science of virginal birth, a, con- a, a, a conception without a without without a a male, uh, and uh, science used to ridicule that notion. It ridicules it no longer, of course. Uh, That's that's all together within the realms of scientific thinking today, uh, and certainly projecting into the future. So the the idea of parthenogenesis uh, isn't ridiculed anymore. Uh, But by the 6th century, uh, the Roman Catholic Church... Um, the fifth ecumenical council had begun to speak about the perpetual virginity of uh, Mary that that nativity of these latter days when the word of God came down from the heavens and was made flesh of holy and glorious Mary mother of God, Theotokos and ever virgin was born from her ever virgin uh, the problem with that is, of course, that Matthew refers to Jesus' brothers and sisters. Uh, there were probably at least five in Jesus' family. Now, Roman Catholics tend to interpret that as cousins and not, and not siblings, not, not brothers and sisters as such. Um, but, but, uh, uh, and that's partly the reason why Protestants have accepted the first four ecumenical councils and then have shied away from all the ecumenical councils after that. Uh, We were looking at the Nicene Creed uh, last week and then the Nicene as the first ecumenical council. Um, But certainly by the time of the fifth ecumenical council you have this statement about the perpetual virginity of Jesus. We've already looked at the Immaculate Conception which is only 150 years old uh, the decree of Pius IX and then Uh, In 1950, just uh, 60 years ago, uh, the assumption of Mary, so uh, there's a statement about the manner of a birth, uh, the manner of a life, and now another statement in Catholicism about the the manner of a departing, uh, and and the assumption of Mary, and then uh, the invocation of Mary, uh, which is certainly a late 19th, 20th century phenomenon, uh, the role of Mary as mediatrix. Uh, and I won't go into all the uh, nuances of what that, uh, what, of what that means. Uh, needless to say that Protestants don't accept any of that. But what should our attitude to Mary be? And let me suggest two things briefly. One, honor. She, she, she and she alone was given the honor 
of being the mother of the Savior, the mother of the Redeemer, the mother of one who is God and man, two natures in one person. So Elizabeth uh, can say to her, blessed are you among women. She is set apart among women. That doesn't mean to say that you pray to her as the mediatrix or that you give her worship uh, as uh, I mean, technically, technically, the Catholic Church, in its dogma, does not give Mary worship. But in the in the, you know, your average Roman Catholic, particularly in Latin America, uh, doesn't think twice about giving worship to uh, to Mary. Uh, we honour her as the mother of the Saviour. I think we honour her too for her parenting skills. I think we also honor Joseph, and Joseph doesn't always get mentioned in, in this, but, but we certainly honor Mary. Who, who, uh, who read to uh, Jesus when he was a little boy, putting him to bed, bedtime stories? Mary. Who taught him, who taught him scripture verses from the Old Testament? Mary. Uh, who nursed him? Who, who sh- shadowed him? Who was his mentor throughout the course of his life? Mary uh, t- tremendous I mean I, I, it's hard to imagine it's, diff- it's impossible to imagine how, how do you parent somebody who's the son of God hard to imagine what goes through the mind of a, of a, of a relatively young teenage girl when, when Jesus is, uh, is born well there's a fascinating conclusion too long to read my time is gone uh, the virgin birth, uh, central uh, and, and, and most important truth in the scriptures with regard to Jesus. Uh, I'm going to pray. Uh, those of you heading to the prayer meeting, we go to Smith uh, Chapel. We'll be back next week. Can't remember what our topic is, but it'll certainly be on Christology and the person uh, of Jesus. Let's uh, pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this extraordinary uh, truth that a young girl, uh, still a virgin, uh, conceived. And that conception was by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that which was conceived in her was none other than uh, the Lord Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer. Uh, We thank you for her and uh, for all of the... uh, Uh, blessedness uh, that is hers uh, and the distinctiveness of her role uh, within the history of redemption. Uh, We ask now for your blessing as we remind ourselves that we are in need of a saviour but we could never have produced by ourselves that saviour. It needed a sovereign intervention from almighty God. So hear us Lord, bless us we ask it in Jesus name. Amen.